0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible.
1: Meet Larissa. She's just put her kids to bed for the night left them with her sister, and now she's on her way to work. She'll work until midnight or 1 a.m. because those are peak driving hours on a Saturday night, which means she'll get paid more. Larissa is an Uber driver. Some nights she drives for Lyft, too. They both pay about the same, and they're both flexible on hours. As a single mom, Larissa needs that flexibility. Because when a kid gets sick, or babysitter falls through, or any other unforeseeable thing happens, Larissa has to go. Uber lets her, Lyft lets her. So, in a literal sense, Larissa isn't real. But her story probably sounds familiar, right? That's because nearly half of the U.S. working population participates in jobs like these. Independent jobs that pay based on services or deliveries or car rides, rather than a set salary or hourly basis. Driving for a car service, delivering food, any freelancing job. These are all jobs within the gig economy. Um, The gig economy is going to.
2: But I think overall,
0: I think the gig economy is going to be around.
1: So what's the big deal? Well, the gig economy. Whether it's Uber and Lyft or Postmates and DoorDash or TaskRabbit and Instacart, a slew of companies have grown up in the smartphone era with this radical idea. And people take these jobs for all kinds of reasons. They're in school and aren't available for a full or even part-time traditional job. Or they already have a job but want some extra easy cash. Or, like Larissa, they've got some tiny humans to look out for pay workers electronically, and let them be independent contractors, not necessarily employees. While the gig economy might seem like a positive evolution for our workforce, our traditional systems haven't quite adjusted yet. And the people bearing the brunt of this slow acclimation period are the gig workers.
3: We think these apps are making the world more efficient, but what if they're not?
1: America's real gig economy. It's like we were kind of invisible and just a number easily replaced. To me it was like more they just felt like it was a machine. A gig job might allow you more flexibility and more freedom but at what cost? In today's episode Daryl West discusses the implications of the gig economy with guests Makeda Henry Nicky and Aaron Klein.
2: Thanks for joining our Tech Tank podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new Brookings book about AI entitled Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The gig economy is a significant part of the digital marketplace. We are seeing this in the rise of short-term workers for ride-sharing services, food delivery and shopping services. In these positions people get paid on a per ride or per delivery basis as opposed to an hourly rate. On the one hand, workers like the flexibility of these kinds of work assignments and the ability to work as many hours as fits their schedule. They get paid quickly and are able to fit their work into child care and elder care responsibilities. But on the other hand, gig workers don't get health or retirement benefits and the protections accorded to full-time employees, such as paid sick leave or a minimum wage. If they are sick and aren't able to work, they don't get paid. Professor Juliette Shore of Boston College warns that, quote, the bigger this gig economy is, the more it undermines protections for workers. She fears with the rise of temporary jobs uh, that stable full-time positions with health care benefits will decline in the future. Today, to discuss these issues, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Makeda Henry-Nickey is a fellow in governance studies at Brookings where she specializes in workforce issues. Uh, She's done very interesting work on the impact of technology on the workforce and ways to protect workers. Aaron Klein is a fellow in economic studies at Brookings and policy director of the Center on Regulation and Markets where he focuses on financial technology and workforce ramifications. He's done very important work on mobile payment systems and ways to strengthen the social safety net. So I wanna start with Aaron. So you write about financial technology and mobile payment systems. How have these and other kinds of digital technologies enabled the gig economy and what are its
3: prospects for moving forward? Darrell, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and to join you and Makeda on this important conversation. Uh, Let's start with the fact that most of the gig economy runs on digital payments. You can't use an Uber or Lyft with cash, right? When you're transacting electronically, you have to have access to electronic money and electronic funds. Now, a lot of people skip over this step because for about two-thirds of Americans, banking is cheap and easy and, frankly, rewarding. Digital money is geared and structured on a system where the more money you have, the cheaper and easier it is to use digital money. But fifteen to twenty percent of Americans who have a bank account still use a check casher, payday lender, uh, money transmitter. These are called the underbanked, and five percent of American households aren't banked at all. For this group of of Americans, which is you know twenty to twenty five percent. Accessing funds in digital form is challenging and costly, and that precludes their ability to fully participate in the digital economy, in much of this gig economy, which requires payments often to be sent and received electronically.
2: Uh, Makeda, I'd like to get your sense of the gig economy. How do you see short-term gigs and per-piece payment approaches Altering the economy and affecting the workforce.
0: It's a pleasure, Daryl, to be back on this podcast again and to join Aaron, who is one of my favorite colleagues, uh, sort of talk, to talk about the gig economy. I think it's important to first step back and define what we mean when we say gig economy. It's it's part of this our economic system where you know gig employers and gig workers negotiate work or tasks and bits and pieces, right? So at its core. The gig economy is mostly supported, to uh, Aaron's point, by technology platforms that match gig employers you know, to gig workers who are willing to take on this kind of piecemeal work arrangement. And, you know, the gig employers, who are they? You know, they tend to straddle the technology and service sectors um, and, of course, use the Internet to mediate this, this sort of on-demand work arrangement. So, of course, you know, we can call them gig or platform economy. I think that it's important to acknowledge that not all gig uh, economic activity is centered around platform or technology companies, right? So, for example, Uber and DoorDash. In fact, we're seeing a growing trend uh, and one that's, you know, disturbing in the non-tech sectors where traditional companies are adopting this sort of gig model um, Mm. and moving their staffing models to piecemeal negotiated work as well, particularly in the transportation industry. But let's kind of begin to kind of cut through the hype a little bit. How big is this gig workforce? It turns out it's not that big just yet. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics and uh, the JP Morgan Chase Institute released um, <clears throat> some contemporaneous studies in 2018 showing that the gig economy, its workforce, accounts for just about 1% of the total US workforce. And even though this gig for- workforce is relatively minuscule, the sector has been growing rapidly. So between 2018 and 2013, the number of gig p- uh, individuals with gig earnings, according to J- uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, increased fivefold from 0.3% to 1.6%. So even with this growth, though, in income and individual participation, to answer your question, I don't think that the, the workforce is uh, it, it, the gig workforce is uh, part of the future of work as we've kind of come. To you know, characterize gig, the gig economy, but the workforce applications are likely going to be substantial, given what we know about what the composition of this uh, gig workforce. You know, who are they likely to be? So, uh, gig workers are likely to be in in the prime age um, of the workforce uh, cohorts, between twenty five to fifty four. In the traditional workforce, they their share they they account for maybe about sixty four percent of um, total workforce. But in the gig economy, they are overrepresented at about 71.2%. So, and because we know that the gig economy has penetrated the transportation and hotel industries, thanks to, of course, Uber, Lyft and Airbnb, low income, low skilled and minority workers are acutely exposed to this vulnerability that Professor, you know, Shaw talks about and the precarity of the, the gig economy. Uber in particular has been, you know, very active in this sort of anti-labor lobby campaign across multiple states. Recently, they were successful in in the passing of Proposition 22 in California. They spent $200 million on that campaign and essentially workers lost. So what did workers lose? They lost the potential to organize and bargain for worker protections, access to the social safety net, let's like, you know, UI, worker compensation. Uh, they lost, California itself as a jurisdiction lost the opportunity to demand that Uber pay its fair share of employer taxes. Um, And that set a dangerous precedent, not just for workers, but it creates this model that can be easily replicated across more jurisdictions for legislative wins. So in my view, in, in the short term, I don't see... Uh, get the gig economy and the gig workforce, per se, in terms of its size, altering the economy uh, too much. But I think the biggest implications will be around labor policies and impacts on certain kinds of workers who are overrepresented in the gig economy, uh, especially as these tech firms continue to have outside influence, outside influence. Excuse me, uh, on state and local labor policies.
2: Those are all terrific points. So, Erin McAda is saying the gig economy is growing uh, and probably likely to increase. Uh, What does this mean for workers? Uh, Will this be bad for future workers?
3: Well, you know, good and bad for workers is all in the eye of the beholder. And life isn't necessarily about absolutes, but about relatives. Uh, What we've seen in society recently is a shift to what I would call on-demand work you know, for many years, there was a major change in the production of firms where they moved to on-demand inventory, mm-hmm. really kind of part of globalization and changing of the supply chain. Uh, and what we've now seen with the gig economy and other areas of hourly work, right? I mean, you know, salaried and the, the ratio of salaried and hourly workers has been roughly 60-40 for Decades, uh, many many Americans have been on hourly work, and hourly work goes up and down just like gig work. The difference in gig work is frequently the worker controls their hours, as opposed to hourly work where the employer controls their hours. Right? Uh, uh, I remember the the, and and I presume this will happen. Or, or <clears throat> let me pause for a second. Uh, you know, often when when uh, uh, white collar workers decide to knock off and close an office a few hours early before a holiday, say the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, they think everybody will be thrilled uh, and ignore the, the hourly workers who just lost half a day's wages by the decision to close early uh, uh, in an unsuspecting manner. In fact, unexpected hits to income are the predominant driver of the need for small-dollar short-term loans, as are payday loans and other products, which are extremely expensive uh, and often delivered in predatory fashion. There's a misnomer in which unplanned expenses tend to be what hurts families living paycheck to paycheck, which is not really the case. It does happen. You hear the story, my car broke down, I needed money. That happens, but research from the Center of Responsible Lending and others indicate the vast majority are are hits to wages. The gig economy offers an opportunity for workers to better control their hours when they need more funds or when they need less than other types of side or volatile income. If you paint houses for the weekend and it rains, for example. Uh, one thing that we've seen. With this California referenda uh, and Makeda, who, who's really brilliant in in capturing the the impacts of of these different areas, but there are many more consumers of gig work than there are employees or producers of the gig work. Many more people ride an Uber than drive an Uber, and what you saw in that referenda, perhaps, was some of this push and pull between users and providers another aspect that i would point out that you saw not just in this referenda but in others is the historical definitions of politics are scrambling when individual questions are posed to work to people in an extremely liberal blue california you saw voters by a decent margin Take what would be considered a, uh, by certainly by organized labor, an anti-labor position, something more associated with right to work or red conservative states. Correspondingly, in places like South Dakota and Mississippi, overwhelmingly red conservative states, you saw voters lean into to, to state licensed and legalized cannabis, uh, something that California was a trendsetter. On nationally, but considered more of a blue issue. So I think what you're te- what this is telling us about voters and the gig economy is that it doesn't necessarily interact with traditional politics as the issues are presented on them on one-off questions. So McKenna,
2: Erin uh, just mentioned uh, California, and it's interesting because legislators there pass tough rules to limit the ability of these uh, digital platforms to classify workers as independent contractors as opposed to full-time employees receiving health and retirement benefits. But mm-hmm. as each of you has uh, mentioned, there was a November referendum. Uh, voters by a 58 to 42 uh, percent margin chose to exempt Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and other similar uh, companies from these regulations. And Makeda, you mentioned there was a $200 million uh, lobbying campaign, so obviously the money uh, affected the vote. But What does the legislation and then the voter rejection tell us about the future of the gig economy?
0: I think it tells us um, in no uncertain terms that we need greater regulation and oversight. Uh, First, I think... We've just been talking about you know, worker protections, mainly in terms of minimum wage, and um, and I think that's important. However, we should be stepping back and trying to examine what other basic protections and rights that gig workers don't enjoy. In addition to this exclusion from the minimum, minimum wage and paid overtime protections, they don't have access to worker compensation, so if they're injured on a job. Uh, drivers who get into an accident, how is that um, lost time and that injury covered? We know that they are overrepresented in the ranks of the uninsured and underinsured. Secondly, uh, employer paid contributions to Social Security. Uh, Uber and all of its other sort of tech um, platform cohorts do not make contributions to the, to the Social Security network, and so as social safety net, excuse me. And that means, uh, you know, we even if we wanted to, our means to provide for gig workers, as we've seen in the Family First uh, Coronavirus Act, as well as the CARES Act, is going to be constrained. And then another area that we don't normally talk about is how much anti-harassment and discrimination protections gig workers don't enjoy. So recently, a former driver sued Uber, claiming that the company fires minorities right on the basis of bias ratings of its passengers who are likely susceptible to discrimination. Um, But the Equal uh, Employment uh, Opportunity Commission, they didn't reach a conclusion in a complaint, but they cleared the way for the complaint to proceed to litigation in the courts. That's important. However, uh, we've seen a, a disturbing trend in terms of the, the large employers, including gig employers, who have increasingly turned to mandatory binding arbitration agreements and embedding those agreements with class action waivers to avoid answering to class action claims. Um, you know, these kinds of agreements force this giant tech company and an individual person to litigate their complaints in private and individually. So, Think of this as the enormous power imbalance of power and the likelihood that this individual driver you know, has the resources to prevail. One other point here. Because these cases play out in private, and even if the individual prevails, the public, including regulators, can't learn from the specific fact pattern that that company likely admitted to fault. And so, therefore, future complainants can't use that case as prior evidence to establish a pattern of practice. Uh, All of this matters because we really need to have appropriate regulations in order to sort of stress and lobby for greater oversight. At the federal level, I think we need Congress to amend the Federal Arbitration Act, specifically to exempt consumer and employer arbitration uh, to provide more protections for workers under the Act. In fact, the Arbitration Fairness Act has been repeatedly introduced into Congress without much progress. But if the AFA were to pass, it would immediately end this practice of mandatory arbitration agreements in terms of employ, employment and consumer uh, instances and make the litigation playing field fairer. So on the issue of worker classification, it is, I mean, that's pretty much what Proposition 22, uh, you know, revolved around. And I, I thought it funny that uh, the CEO of Postmeet argued recently in an op-ed for this worker classification issue, making it almost a socialist argument um, and and advocating for this new gig worker category that would include or expand the worker classification taxonomy and allow for, you know, provisions of benefits. And, but when you unpack, you know, Prop 22, this is huge catch. $16.80 is what workers won for uh, minimum wages whilst they are driving, but they spend a third of their time waiting for a ride. And we know that since the you know, pandemic has con- continued to drag on without any um, leadership and, and uh, vaccine in sight, we know that this, uh, that sector has completely tankered, ha- cratered. So instead of, um, in addition to that, instead of healthcare, they'll get health subsidies. And so whilst they're waiting, that $16.80 an hour evaporates and they get $0 for a third of their time that they're on the job for Uber. We need to also resolve this worker classification issue, but we can't allow gig employers to captain the ship at all.
2: So Erin, uh, Makeda has argued that we need what she calls appropriate regulation. So. Uh, what do you think the rules of the road should look like for the gig economy? Should it be harder to classify employees as independent contractors as opposed to full-time employees? Do independent contractors deserve greater worker protection, such as a minimum wage and paid sick
3: leads? And then what about this issue of binding arbitration? I think everybody's for appropriate regulation. The trick is defining appropriate, right? Uh, We clearly uh, uh, don't want an Unregulated wild west uh, for anything. You don't want to walk in the car of an Uber driver and not know the person has a driver's license. The car is up to a minimum set of standards, et cetera, and so forth. On the other hand, if you let the taxicab commission be in charge of when Uber would meet appropriate regulatory standards, we never would have gotten it. In fact, had Uber tried to go through the taxicab commission model, it would have been blacked. I live in a county in Maryland over a million people with where the uh, one taxi cab company has 90% of the restricted number of licenses and their president sits on the board of the taxi cab commission and also on the board of the uh, county party one political party that controls almost every elective office in the county to which this one person is is very uh, well connected to taxi cabs are incredibly expensive in Montgomery County Maryland there is a Horrific record of how workers are treated. You can find this in, in in some of the little investigative journalism that was done. I've had this happen to friends of mine. Uh, and so let's not pretend that the status quo in some of these industries is that of a competitive dynamic market where workers are treated fairly and consumers get a good deal. In point of fact, I'm very pleased that ride sharing came to Montgomery County, Maryland, over the objections of the then County Council, County Executive who tried to stop it like many places, tried to stop it when, in point of fact, it delivered better, cheaper service. In addition, often last-mile-dependent people for for transportation are lower income. You have to look at both the workers and the users. The two deciles of income that people in deciles of income that spend the most on taxi cabs are the wealthiest and the lowest income, people who can't afford to be 10 minutes late to work and when the bus uh, doesn't meet them for the connecting bus stop they have to eat it and take a high-priced cab uh, because it, the costs of being a few minutes late to work are not borne equally dependent upon all workers. Uh, mandatory arbitration has a series of different problems, particularly as, as Makeda points out, pointing out the, the record uh, and providing more information for, for other areas. Uh, uh, beyond that, some of the other specifics in, in labor law are not necessarily my field of study. What I will point out is you have a two-sided equation here where you have the users of the service and the workers. And one of the potential benefits to the workers of gig work is on-demand pay. So we have a system where for most office work, salaried or hourly, you work for two weeks, then your payment is processed for a week, and three weeks after you started the work, the money hopefully hits your account. Uh, this is very costly. These multi-week delays hurt people who run out of money. When Fridays occur on the 2nd and rent is due on the 1st, it becomes inc- this pl- places a very large financial burden on people without much money. Uber was one of the earliest companies, and Lyft too, to put in same day pay where employees could uh, uh, request to get paid in the same day. Now, this was also far too expensive uh, for reasons that we can get into, uh, but you know it proved incredibly popular. And so you have to ask yourself, why do we have a system structured whereby workers provide multi-week free loans of their own income to wealthier employers you're seeing financial technology firms like Square, uh, payment processors start to try to provide on-demand workers, uh, and salary. I'll note we're taping this over Thanksgiving week, which is an unusual week. Lots of employees who tend to get paid on that Friday may find their paycheck not hitting until the following Monday because Thursday's a holiday. It's pretty rare to have a Thursday holiday. And the way our payment system works, if an employer hits send on their paycheck on Tuesday, is when the money usually shows up on Friday, but this holiday could kick it over a weekend. This could be very expensive, creating billions in overdraft fees for people who aren't paying close attention and assume their paycheck landed on Friday and then they went out uh, and spent money in the holiday shopping weekend. There's no good reason for these delays in our payment system and their costs are born spectacularly one-sided to people without money. I'll close by pointing out 35 billion dollars a year is spent in overdraft according to one estimate 100% of which goes to people who have bank accounts and have run out of money it's the only way you can get an overdraft fee there's a ceo of a of a of a medium-sized bank in minneapolis tcf bank who named his yacht overdraft that's where this current system is taking hard-earned money from people who live paycheck to paycheck and resending it And new innovative work structures provide an opportunity to get us out of this existing status quo, which has substantial problems.
2: So that's a very interesting point about uh, Thanksgiving and possible overdrafts. I think uh, most don't know about the day-to-day logistics of payments and the problems that uh, that can create uh, for uh, these uh, kinds of uh, workers. So. But it seems like, you know, when we think about economic insecurity, there would be a couple of different ways to address it, one at the company level, another at the public policy level. So with companies, it's a question of how fair or unfair their arrangements are, should should there be higher pay there? But another way to address these uh, uh, worker issues is through public policy. So the question I have for you is, with the gig economy likely to become more prevalent, in coming years. Do we need a new social contract for workers? And if so, what should it look like? Like, What are the important changes that would help provide greater security for workers?
0: So I think that's an important uh, observation, one, that yes, whilst the gig economy is relatively small, it's growing rapidly. And the kind of profitability and productivity returns that the gig economy offers, it's unlikely that we will see this uh, model or these sectors decline. In fact, they are well set to increase and to multiply in terms of scale and impact. First, I think it's important, Daryl, that we need to make it hard for companies to classify their, um, or not properly classify their employees or their workers as employees, right? In my view, the, the COVID pandemic has, in some ways, functioned like a random cohort experiment of sorts where you can set up a study to examine the effects of different scenarios. Like, what would happen if 90% of the 5.9 million contingent workers suddenly lost their jobs for nine months? Well, that's what happened here with COVID, right? And we know the answers. One, gig employment in the transportation sector would crater, but it wouldn't disappear. In fact, Workers from both that sector as well as the real, the non gig economy sector would shift into the food delivery sector, which has seen a dramatic rise um, in uh, workers clamoring to get onto the platforms to pr- provide services and earn c- income, particularly from you know furloughed workers and laid off workers searching for work. Um, and because these gig workers are not protected, not the old, the incumbent workers or the new ones, they're not protected by federal or state wage laws. It's in a system that essentially functions like an, au- an auction. We've seen the offer rates for these jobs squeeze downwards um, as a result of these, this new influx of workers willing to accept lower wages, right, to pay rent and to put food on the table. So, to improve the situation, to, to rehabilitate the social network, uh, I'm sorry, social safety net we need to think, I think, in sort of two mindsets, one short term and the other longer term. In in the short term, we need to put uh, measures in place, particularly during the pandemic, which is still very much present with us, to require gig employers, particularly those in sectors with high contact occupations, to provide mandatory hazard pay uh, rates um, and provide hazard health insurance. So, We've seen, you know, great I think policies come into play with the CARES Act. But while 75% of all workers have traditional workers, that is, have access to paid sick leave and paid vacations, no independent contractors have these benefits unless they live in a state that allows them access to the paid medical leave system. So right off the bat, regardless of whether you know you are a gig employer or you know, the the employee is classified as a W-2 or 1099 independent contractor, putting those, uh, providing access to hazard health insurance would immediately make most of these workers protected, in, especially in instances when they're not. I would also ar- argue to put workers on automatic paid sick leave. Some measures were enacted with uh, under the CARES Act, but I think we've seen a fair amount of discretionary interpretation as to which workers, which firms, and what those processes and procedures would look like. And unfortunately, most of those burdens fell to the same workers who can least afford it. We've seen workers at Amazon and Instacart have to resort to large-scale protests in order to get you know, um, these access to basic protections. And this lastly, j- lastly, excuse me, just common sense mandating that in the short term, all employers, particularly gig employers, provide PPE and pick up the expenses of cleaning supplies. But in the longer term, we need Congress to pass legislation guaranteeing gig workers the right to unionize, to organize, and to bargain for and pool their, their bargaining power to organize for better um, protections, including some of the th- you know, options I listed above, and also those for, um, you know, for the future. We need Congress to raise the, minimum, the federal minimum wage to $15. And at the state level, we need states to mandate that gig employers pay their fair share and pay UI premiums, unemployment insurance premiums, for all of their workers, regardless of their classification. Um, I think, again, the the social contract, of course, undoubtedly has to be reimagined. And at the center of this rearticulation process, we need to center policies that protect workers, their livelihoods, and in the case in the case of some sort of um, unforeseen uh, event that destabilizes their economic security, put measures in place that protect their resiliency.
2: So Aaron Mcada has raised an interesting point here about the level of the uh, regulation. Where should regulation and policymaking take place, the national, state, or local levels? And what are the ramifications of each level being the primary decision-maker for
3: the gig economy? So, uh, Dale, this is a really important question, and it's a difficult one because there are places in this country where the economy exists almost within the state. So California, Texas, Florida, the vast preponderance of activity in those states occurs within their boundaries in services.
0: Uh,
3: This is very different than New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, D.C., Virginia, places where much of the economic activity is on the border. If you start an Uber ride in one uh, state, you can pass through two or three, depending on where you're headed or going in the country, or have almost no chance of, of occurring within. There are some issues that need to be dealt with nationally. Questions uh, Makeda puts about uh, PPE and other examples where fundamental worker safety is at stake. There is a clear national goal. Uh, Minimum wage is one where we've had an unusual national, state, uh, sometimes local situation where there are federal floors and then differing levels uh, above that floor. Clearly, the federal floor has fallen far too low uh, and needs to be raised, but there are also places where local minimum wages rationally should be higher than the national minimum wage because local costs of living are very, very different. Uh, another question where you can kind of see areas where you may want to have some state or local innovation has to do with differing ways in which the uh, workers are uh, interact with unemployment insurance. It is, on the one hand, a national program. On the other hand, states have differing systems, as we've seen uh, highlight by the in- inordinate pressure the CARES Act put in place. The state systems failed in many instances. They're put on outdated computer programming languages like Cobalt. They haven't been really structurally improved since the 60s. What we have is a changing nature of work An existing system predicated on a post-World War II myth that everybody works uh, for a firm for long periods of time with the same engagement, with generally steady hours and wages, uh, and can afford multiple week delays in how they're paid. Uh, I would like to see more innovation at the state level, and frankly, I'd like to see more innovation at the federal level. Uh, payments is an area where there's a tremendous amount of tension. Uh, there are n- uh, Any money transmission business is actually state-licensed. There is no federal money transmission license. There's some legislation proposed in Congress to do that. Uh, but fundamentally, if you're trying to send money between two counterparties, which is often part of a gig platform— You have two options, which are to go through a bank or a state licensed entity. And if you're going to roll out a national platform, that requires 50 state licenses. If you don't go through a bank, itself, a 12 to 18 month process that is very expensive and time consuming. I think holistically, we need a broader conversation about the changing nature of work that encompasses all these different dimensions that the gig economy throws at us at once and overlay that on the existing federal, state, uh, local policy levers and and see this very complicated matrix that would develop, uh, handling each one piecemeal is tempting but it will reinforce the existing irrationality of the system, uh, which the gig economy constantly threatens because the solutions these apps are providing are solutions to problems people face. Those problems don't neatly cleave along the regulatory and legal distinctions that this system has been building upon for centuries.
2: Uh, you're absolutely right. It is a complicated uh, matrix. Uh, Makeda, your thoughts on the level of regulation. Should we be addressing these issues of the gig economy at the national, state, or local levels?
0: I agree with uh, Aaron largely on trying to place regu- the regulatory burden or the obligation at the right, uh, the appropriate jurisdictional level. So, in my view, the federal government should take leadership and set the agenda on critical issues of workers' rights to organize and raising the minimum wage, regardless of the um, uh, cost context. And then they should continue to protect the Affordable Care Act from further attempts to invalidate the law or carve out protections for workers. That's gonna be absolutely critical at the national level to hold the stake and and, and, and hold the flag for uh, vulnerable workers, including gig workers. At the state and local authorities, I think we they need to seize this moment of wokeness, right? To realize what I think is the magnitude of the economic loss they've had to absorb when contingent workers, for the first time, thankfully, uh, have had access to the social safety net. But that means they've flooded the state the system with claims. Um, and to Aaron's point, we've seen uh, state systems crumble because. Their legacy infrastructure was just not prepared to deal with the tsunami of demand, some of them having to call um, back to their uh, even laid off people or retired employees to come help them decode or stand up cobalt driven um, systems. But all in all, you've got the system flooded with claims and from people who are experiencing unprecedented levels of economic insecurity, job loss, and even food insecurity. So in Nashville, Tennessee, you know, we're we're seeing uh, state and local leaders scratch their heads to think of how they're going to plug these budget gaps. And and, in Nashville, they've come up with this um, 34% increase in a property tax. Imagine how much more efficient we could allocate resources if we were to mandate that gig employers fairly paid into the UI system, as opposed to asking local local jurisdictions to cut into their uh, education budgets or force financially insecure homeowners to the edge. Uh, I agree I agree with Aaron that we need to be innovative, but I think there are a lot of low-hanging fruit. We just need to have the political wherewithal <laughs> to bring those uh, policy wins to the table.
2: Well, this has been a terrific conversation. I want to thank Makeda and Aaron for sharing their thoughts with us about the gig economy. They write regularly on the Brookings website, and you can find their work at brookings.edu. Let us know if you have any reactions to our Tech Tank podcast series. We look forward to hearing your suggestions and thanks so much for tuning
0: in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.